Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons, and it's Thursday, December the 7th, and this is Narrative Wars. Thank you for joining us on this Thursday edition of Narrative Wars. Today's program will feature conversations that I've had with people who were there on December the 7th, 1941. Second, we pivot from the military conflict of World War II to the current industrial military complex and how it influences Congress. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, she gives her insight and observation in a recent interview with Tucker Carlson. These stories and the bigger picture on today's episode of Narrative Wars. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons, and you don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars, with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired. We're going to jump right into this first piece with a clip from the past. This is President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he's addressing Congress. Let's take a listen to this. Cut number one. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. Now, that speech was given on December the 8th, 1941, regarding the attack upon Pearl Harbor, which was December the 7th, 1941. That was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That speech was given 82 years ago. I have family members that were there living in Hawaii at that time. Recall that Hawaii was not a state in 1941. It didn't become a state until 1959. So in 1941, Hawaii was a territory of the United States of America. But the Pacific Fleet of the United States of America was based in Hawaii, and that's what was attacked. It was early on a Sunday morning, and people were coming back from church. My father was only 10 years old that morning. He lived on a hill, and there were airplanes flying over his head when he got off the bus, returning from church. The pilots were in the cockpits, and they were so low that he could see 
the silhouettes of those pilots. But there was something different about these airplanes. They had red dots underneath the wings. They weren't American airplanes. The pilots were well-trained. They didn't drop bombs on the city that morning, December 7, 1941. They didn't shoot civilians in the city. The target was Pearl Harbor. One of the most curious aspects of the Pearl Harbor attack was that there were these enormous fuel tanks that were above ground. Many of those tanks are still there to this very day, and you can observe them. Not a single one of those enormous fuel tanks was bombed or destroyed by the Japanese airplanes. They were given instructions, the pilots were, to just attack the ships which were in Pearl Harbor. And that's what they did. The true goal of the attack was the American aircraft carriers, but fortunately for the United States of America, the aircraft carriers were not in Pearl Harbor on December the 7th, 1941. They were out at sea. Everything changed after the attack. Governor Poindexter, the governor of Hawaii, the territory of Hawaii, he quickly folded and turned the civilian government over to the military. Military justice was then enforced in Hawaii during the entire war. That means there was no, no civil court system. The judges, the prosecutors, all those people that worked in the civil system, they were gone, replaced by the military justice system, which was enforced in Hawaii during the entire war. And then it continued for about a year after the war concluded because they had to rehire people, retrain people, put people in place. Once turning that switch off, it was difficult to turn it back on. For children that lived during that time in the territory of Hawaii, like my father, their childhood was lost. Essentially, it was destroyed. Everything changed. There was barbed wire on the beach of Waikiki, and everyone had to carry gas masks when they left their homes. They had to dig shelters at schools, and they had to dig shelters in other public places. My father said that the military would release tear gas on the streets of Honolulu. He recounted that one time he went to a movie, and when he came out of the movie theater... There was tear gas in the street. And for those that didn't have their masks, it was quite a painful and memorable experience. They also released tear gas on a beach one day. My father happened to be out surfing and he had to climb over barbed wire to get out into the ocean. Then he had to climb over barbed wire again to return to the beach. The beaches of Waikiki had been fenced in. They didn't know if there would be an attack. And one time when he was returning to land after surfing, he said they gassed him and anybody else that just happened to be on the beach. Well, 
He didn't happen to take his gas mask surfing. So once again, it was a most unpleasant experience. And I suppose the reason for gassing the public with tear gas, unannounced, was the military's friendly way of reminding the public the importance of always being ready, the importance of always carrying your gas mask with you. Those gas masks were never needed after December 7, 1941. You know, I think of the children in Israel, the children alive today in 2023. Life will never be the same for them after October 7, 2023. Especially those children that lived just a few miles away from the Gaza Strip in numerous kibbutzes, children who lost family members, children who survived somehow by being locked inside a safe room. Some of those children didn't survive. Some were kidnapped. A few have been kidnapped and returned to their families. But for those who've survived, life will still never be the same. As of this day, they can't return to their homes in those farming communities referred to as kibbutzes. They have to live far away from it because the Israeli government can't guarantee their safety. There's a war going on, an active war. My father said that Pearl Harbor affected his entire life, and maybe that's why he became an alcoholic. Maybe that's why he didn't like the military. I'm really not sure. Now, to his credit, he did serve in the military during the Korean War, but he served four years, got out, and never wanted to talk about it unless I probed him. When the Twin Towers came down on September the 11th, 2001, I was the person who, unfortunately, called my father on the phone and told him about the attack. He said that all the memories of Pearl Harbor and December 7, 1941 came flooding back into his memory, the memories of his childhood. He said his Childhood was taken from him. He said that his education had been changed. His school had been shut down. The beaches were covered with barbed wire. He said Hawaii didn't look the same. Basically, the territory of Hawaii looked like one giant military base. He remembers certain days later on in the war few years after December 7, 1941, when he saw ship after ship after ship after ship leave Pearl Harbor, and it was going to war. He'll never forget those memories. I just watched a few days ago the movie Midway. It was made in 2019. Now, I thought 
it was a well-done movie. For some reason, the critics didn't like it, but the audience liked it, and I did. It featured the codebreakers that worked at Pearl Harbor after December the 7th, 1941. Because of the codebreakers, which were able to intercept the Japanese secure messages, the Americans were able to the Americans were able to construct or put together a surprise attack on the Japanese carrier fleet, which turned the course of the war in the Pacific. If you haven't seen the movie Midway, which was made in 2019, I recommend it. I've been to Pearl Harbor myself more than once, and I've seen the building where the code breakers worked. People on base were quick to point it out to me. It's still standing to this day. And the bullet holes from the December 7, 1941 attack, they're still visible. The U.S. Navy will not repair the bullet holes in the concrete. They do not want Navy personnel to forget what happened on that day, December the 7th. 1941. I'm so very thankful for the brave Americans that fought back on that day. Very few American planes were able to get up into the air to fight against the Japanese. There was one non-military plane that just happened to be up in the air, flying around, as is often the case. The Japanese didn't shoot it down. It was no threat. Had no machine guns and they were trained. Don't waste your bullets on a civilian aircraft. There are many stories of December 7, 1941 and what the public did after. I could talk about my grandfather who was a civilian guard in the military gave him a helmet and a time when he was to patrol the neighborhood and they gave him a wooden rifle. True story. Because the military didn't want the public to be shooting each other. So he patrolled the neighborhood with a wooden rifle. There are many stories about December 7, 1941 and I'm thankful for those who fought and won that war for the United States, especially those brave young Americans that fought at Midway, where the course of the war changed and the Japanese carrier fleet was decimated. And next year, God willing, I'll tell other stories about that day and the days after and how my family coped with December the 7th. 1941. While reaching into the Narrative Wars mailbag, in response to the story I covered last episode on the state of Texas making illegal immigration illegal in the state of Texas, all about 626 wrote the following, quote, after two years and being a border state forever, gee, what took so long? Unquote. 
Well, thank you for that comment, All About 626. You can add your voice to the conversation that stands for liberty and the freedoms that Americans hold so dearly. Join us on social media on both Getter, that's G-E-T-T-R, and also Truth Social. Just search for at Jeffrey K. Lyons, and that's Lyons with a Y. I enjoy receiving your feedback and reading some of your comments on the air. Again, you can follow us on Getter and Truth Social by searching at Jeffrey K. Lyons. And when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please five-star rate follow and send our podcast link to one or two like-minded friends. That's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars posse. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. Tucker Carlson did a recent interview with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene from the great state of Georgia. And we really do want to give a shout out to those of you, our listeners in Georgia. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia people. Yeah, great, great group of people over there. Yeah, thank you very much. And I know we have quite a few people that listen to our program from the state of Georgia. So it's always great to give a shout out. This story has to do with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who had some rather insightful things to say about both fundraising and the military-industrial complex in Washington, D.C. Let's take a listen to this. This is cut number two. So foreign policy is one of those things that I don't think most people who aren't involved in this or live in Washington think about quite as much, but that kind of is the red line, it feels like, for a lot of these people in D.C. Well, if you don't fund the foreign wars, if you don't wear the country that is fighting, that you're supposed to be supporting, if you don't wear their flag or wear their little uh, colors in your front pocket of your jacket, if you don't have a sign outside your office door that says, I stand with Ukraine or whatever the flavor of the month is, then you're going against Washington. You're going against the Pentagon. You're going against the military industrial complex and you will pay the price. But shouldn't the Congress, the Congress has oversight over all of those institutions, the Pentagon, of course, the intel agencies, the entire executive branch. Congress funds them and has oversight over them. They shouldn't be mindlessly carrying their water or acting on their priorities, right? So when she's referring to the military-industrial complex, she's referring to all the contractors that benefit from all the government contracts that the United States government funds. You know, those companies that make the jets and the ships and the airplanes and various implements of war, bullets, uniforms, everything. Many companies are involved. So now she pivots and she begins to talk about fundraising and, and the reality of what it is to be a congressperson, remember, in the House, they have to run for office every two years. And that's why the gavel for the Speaker of the House can change rather quickly. It's much more difficult to change the Senate because only a third of the senators come up for election 
every two years. And so being a representative, it's almost like you're always running for office. As soon as you get elected, you're already thinking, what do I need to do to get reelected? So let's listen as this interview continues and Marjorie Taylor Greene explains the type of pressures and realities that these representatives face. They shouldn't be, but here's what's interesting about how fundraising works in Washington. If you're a member of Congress and you, you have to get reelected every two years, you need money to campaign. You need money for your ads. You need money for the literature you mail people. You need money to encourage your voters to get out and vote. Well, how, how you know, it's hard to raise that money. So in Washington, the military industrial complex and other big industries have all of their lobbyists. Well, they can host you a fundraiser literally in one night and raise you hundreds of thousands of dollars as a member of Congress. And you won't have to spend hours on the phone calling donor after donor, begging for, can you give me $1,000? Can you give me $2,000? Please, I really need your help. I got to get reelected. I've got five primary opponents. These members of Congress don't have to continue doing that hard work and begging and begging and begging for money from from other donors or from their districts when they can walk in a room, have a cocktail reception with little weenies on a stick and a bunch of alcoholic drinks, and they're getting written big checks over and over by all of these lobbyists and all of these big companies, major companies that really thrive on American taxpayer contracts. So that's the reality. And I know we've got a smart audience out there. A number of you are aware of that. But some of you perhaps are not. Some of you perhaps have not been to any of those fundraisers. And we're going to talk about that in our closing comments to today's show. But when these lobbyists who come with checkbooks loaded with large donations, there's an understanding. We have given a lot of money to you to help you get reelected. There's an understanding that when certain bills come up that affect those companies that those lobbyists represent, when they make an appointment to see and have a conversation with a congressperson, they're going to get in and they're going to talk to that congressperson and they are going to explain why such and such bill, such and such measure, such and such policy needs to be supported. This is how it's done. So Marjorie Taylor Greene is unique. She does not accept donations from large donors that represent the military-industrial complex. She's gone on record saying that. And she mentions it in Tucker's interview. Links are in the show notes. The point is, she's not tied to them. If they call and say, hey... I need an appointment. She could take it or she could not take it or she could take it and not spend a lot of time. There's not an understanding there 
that you must take my appointment. Now, she mentions that it's difficult to raise funds, to get on the phone, and talk to constituents. I've gotten those phone calls before because I've been involved. And I've gotten phone calls directly from candidates. Can you contribute to my campaign? And in many cases, I did because I already had a relationship with that person and I believed in what they stood for. In fact, one election a number of years ago, a newly elected congressperson called our household and said, thank you for supporting us. Thank you for supporting our campaign. And the phone call came from Washington, D.C. And I thought, that's pretty impressive. And I just happened to be involved in a campaign. Some Congress people, they just don't want to spend a lot of time on the phone talking to constituents directly. You know, they got places to go, people to see, things to do. So it's very tempting. You just pick up the phone and talk to lobbyist so-and-so. And within a few days, they put together a fundraiser cocktail party and she talks about, you know, hors d'oeuvres on a stick. You know, those little sausages or cheese and crackers and alcoholic adult beverages. And people are stroking big checks. Could be in the six figures. So does that happen? Yeah, that happens all the time. And she chooses not to do that. And now our final segment, which we call The Bigger Picture. Have you ever been to a political fundraiser yourself for a candidate that is in your district? I'd suggest that everyone should attend a few. One of the best ways to defund the big Washington lobbyists is to contribute a few dollars directly to your candidate. Now, I understand. I understand that you may be living in a blue state. And if you haven't already figured it out, this is a conservative talk show. But you can still contribute to those candidates that you support that are running against candidates that you do not support. Now, I prefer to give directly to candidates and to not give through fundraising organization, but that's just me. I've been able to meet a governor, some U.S. Congress people, several state representatives and senators. I haven't met a U.S. president yet, not face to face, but I've talked to some people who've spoken directly with President Trump. And if you understand Washington, D.C., it's a town built upon favors, alliances, and quid pro quo. We're entering the 2024 political season. A lot of promises are going to be made. A lot of speeches will be given. At the end of the day, what truly matters is how your representatives vote and what bills they either sponsor or co-sponsor. 
quite often sound bites, interviews on television news outlets, they don't really give us a clear picture of how politicians represent us. The information is out there, however, and you can easily obtain it by doing a little bit of research. And that's what a constitutional republic is supposed to be. Elected officials that represent the interests of their constituents. As Benjamin Franklin admonished one new citizen of the American Republic after the Constitutional Convention, we have, quote, a republic, if you can keep it, unquote. It is therefore incumbent upon us to do just that. Patriots, those of us who love America and what she has stood for, must continue to be involved. I'm certainly grateful. If America had lost the war to the Japanese, then Hawaii would be a much different place today. And I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So let us continue to support the land of the free and the home of the brave, a place where we can still proclaim liberty throughout the land. And that's a comforting thought. Until next time for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired.